question. Have you ever thought about what God thinks when he thinks about you? Have you ever thought about what God thinks when he thinks about you? In fact, about Psalm 139 answered that question. And it answered it in terms of the thoughts that God have of you and I, they are so vast that they exceed the sands on the seashore. Can you imagine that? I see someone shaking their head. He's an infinite God, therefore he possesses infinite thoughts about you and I. And I ask you this question. What comes to your mind when you think on God? What comes to your mind when you think on God? In fact about it, you might have heard someone say, the most important thing about us is what we think of God. What comes to our mind when we think of God? That's the most important thing about us. And I open this sermon up that particular way for the simple reason is, we are looking at a young a man today, Job. And Job shows us something in terms of what he thought about God in a very tough environment, a suffering environment. And there are three things that I'm going to try to bring out that Job thought about God and we should think about as well. Job thought that God is a sovereign God. And Job also thought that God is a just God. And Job also thought that God is a good God. Those are Job's thoughts in the midst of his suffering that he thought about God. Now think about this. You and I have the canon. We are looking back, reading about Job's life. Job didn't have the scriptures. In fact about it, the Bible, history shows us that Job is the oldest book in the Bible. He did not have what we have, but yet look at how he thought about God. And I have to ask myself the question is, where did he get that information from? And we talk about worshiping in spirit and truth. Job is worshiping a God that he can't see. But yet, he is worshiping God based upon the truth. Without written truth. And that makes me wonder sometimes where did he get that information from? I almost have to say that he was worshiping God in spirit and truth. 
And that's one thing I kind of noticed about the Old Testament saints. They worshiped God with very, very little knowledge, and they stood firm, and God was an anchor for them in the midst of whatever they was going through. So open your Bible to the book of Job, chapter 2. And in the midst of opening your Bible there, I want to share a few facts with you. And this is something that is very, very important. And I hope it kind of catches you and you can kind of see what is really kind of going on. We all know that names in the Bible are very, very important. Names in the Bible are very, very important. Job's name means hated one. Job's name means persecuted one. Think about that. Think about the meaning of Job's name and think about what has happened to Job. Wow. But I tell you one thing, as much as Satan hated Job, his hate was no match for the love of God. And I also say, and you know this as well, that the book of Job deals head on with the problem of pain and the mystery of man's suffering. It's a mystery to us because God's ways are not like our ways, and God's thoughts are not like man's thoughts. That's the great mystery. And another thing about the book of Job is this. The book of Job defends the character of a loving God. It defends the character of a loving God that God is sovereign, God is good, and God is just. That's God's character, and that's the character that the book of Job defends. And here's another thing that you can look and think about Job as well, another fact. And it's a fact of our lives as well. Job had to walk by faith rather than sight. And I had said earlier this, that Job cannot see what you and I read about in the book of Job. And he is walking by faith. Now let me say this also, that based upon our reading, and you have read the book of Job before, but I want to put some things in proper perspective this morning. That in Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, we have the first test that Job faced. And that particular test is this. God allows Satan to test Job's faith by attacking everything that Job had with the exception of Job himself. So you can attack any and everything that Job has, but do not put your hands on Job. Do not attack him. You can attack his family, you can attack his possession, etc., etc. That was the first test. Okay? Now, the second test is the test that I want us to look at today. In that particular test, God will allow Satan to actually put his hands 
on Job's body physically. He is going to impact the health of Job. That's the second test. Now also, if you recall, the reading in Job 1 and the Job 2, it's almost identical. Those two scenes are almost identical, if you think about it. So, stand with me as I read uh, Job uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. And I'm asking you to stand because this particular standing says that you stand with me and I'm not just preaching to you. So hear the word of God as recorded in Job chapter 2 and verse 1. Again, that was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. Verse 3, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fear God and turn away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. Very important. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Verse 5. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. Verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. The grass withers, the flower faded, but the word of God stands forever. You may be seated. And I want to look at these verses uh, this morning, and I want to kind of show you something in these particular verses. And I'm kind of abandoning the, the text that I was using in the bulletin there, so kind of bear along with me. Notice verse 1. Verse 1 says this, And again, there was a day when the Son of God came to present himself before the Lord, and Satan also came along with them to present himself before the Lord. Now, the presenting of themselves before the Lord indicating they were coming to give an account to God of what has been going on and the things that they had been observing. This is the account uh, that they are giving. 
Now, understand that it says the sons of God, and we know that God has only one son, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, the sons of God here means the angels. That's the implication of the S-O-N-S, the sons of God. But also, it's very, very important to notice this right here, that Satan's name is not mentioned along with the sons of God. It says that, and Satan also came with them. That's very, very important to take note of that, that Satan was mentioned separately. Now, I'm going to say this, and this is me talking, but I believe that there's some validity in it. Before Satan fell, what was his name in heaven? Start L. What other, what other angels in the Bible are named? What other two angels in the Bible are named? Say again. Gabriel and Michael. So Gabriel and Michael are called what? Archangels. Lucifer's name is mentioned would imply that Lucifer is called a what? Oh, wow. Y'all with me this morning. Thank you. He was an archangel. How many angels fell with Satan? Now, the implication now, I'm talking, but I think my talking makes sense in the spirit. If one-third fell with Satan, the other two-thirds remain with who? Gabriel and Michael. One-third with Gabriel, one-third with Michael, one-third with Luther. Lucifer, who fell, is called Satan. One-third plus one-third plus one-third is what? A whole, right? You see what's going on there? But Satan was over the angels. But he failed. Now, if you notice that this incident took place in heaven because they reported back to God in heaven. Now, Satan has a conversation with God in heaven. Satan has access to God's presence. Though he does not live there, but I remind you, and think about this here, just as Judah was among the disciples, it's possible for Satan to be among. You see? Okay. I see someone agree with me. Because that's how you have to look at it. You know, because someone might say, well, how can sin be in heaven? But notice Judas with the disciples and Jesus and Satan with the angels meeting with God in heaven. Now notice our verse 2 here. Our verse 2 says this, And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. The following scripture shows this that Satan never changed. He still seeks whom he can destroy. And as you heard the scripture read this morning from 1 Peter chapter 5, it goes on to say that, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He has not changed. Because look at what he's doing way back here 
to Job. I remind you that Satan actively works for the downfall of you and I, and he is going to and fro to do it. And his going to and fro is not good. It's not for good. It is for evil. Also, kind of notice in verse 2, it was God who initiated this dialogue between he and Satan. It was God that initiated this dialogue. So that tells us that Satan is under the control of the Lord. He is accountable to the Lord for what he does because he is reporting back to heaven and he is reporting to what he has been doing. Even though he does not have to do that because God is omniscient. He knows all things. But this is for a reason. So the account in Job emphasized God is sovereign over Satan. It teaches that Satan is a finite being and he is not omniscient, he is not omnipresent, and he is not omnipotent. He gets his power and his thought process from God. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have said it, but anyway. Listen to these words in Job 121. It says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is a confession that God is sovereign and in complete control of Job's life. God asking about Satan's whereabouts is not for God's benefit. God was asking about Satan's benefit not for God's benefit either. God asking about Satan's whereabout was for the angel's benefit. It was for the angel's benefit. And let me just say one thing. I, you know, a week before, I was asked to preach, not knowing what I was going to preach about. Someone had sent me this particular verse, Job 121. And they had said to, to me in the text that they really liked that verse. And people will perhaps think that they are weird for liking such a verse. But as I read that particular verse, I said to myself, we all should make that verse our prayer. That should be a prayer of every saint, what Job said in verse 121. Because you never know when those days are going to come like Job. And you can stand firm on the word of God and say what Job said. Because you know that you can trust God. And that's what Job is doing. He is trusting God. Look at verse 3 with me. And it's going to say, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fear God and turn away from his evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incite me against him to destroy him without reason. He has no reason for what he's asking God to do to Job. 
And the phrase without reason indicates that Satan is the guilty party in this case. He is guilty because he is asking God to do something to a man without no reason whatsoever. Job has done nothing to incur the pain and the loss. I hope you can see that this conflict is not between Job and Satan. This conflict is between Job and God Almighty. That's who this conflict is about. And I say this, and you think about this with me. Just as Satan desired to harm Job for no reason at all, Think about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was punished for your sin and my sin for no reason at all. But he did it because he loved the Father. And God is sovereignly watching over that same situation with his son, Jesus Christ, as he did with Job. So the attack on Job was without cause. Therefore, the punishment from God was not for something evil Job had done. So you got to take that under consideration. Many times you might ask a question, what, Lord, what have I done wrong? Job has not done anything wrong, but this is being done to him. So it looked like he is being, being punished for something but he has not done anything wrong at all. All right? So Job stayed faithful to God under the worst of circumstances, and Satan had told God that Job would curse him to his face. Job did no such thing. He worshiped God even more than before the trouble began. Well, it say in Job 1.20, and he fell on the ground and worshiped. That is speaking of the worship of God whom Job was trusting in and leaning on because he didn't understand all what had happened to him. We do not worship God for bad things that happened to us, but we worship God in the midst of those bad things. And Paul talks about that. We don't ask for bad things to happen to us, but when they do happen to us, in the midst of them, we can trust God and worship him. And that's exactly what Job did. He put on his worshiping clothes. So you really see in this particular battle, Satan is losing and has lost this battle as well. God saying, Job being perfect and upright does not imply that Job was sinless, but Job's integrity met the expectation of God. That's the implication of being blameless and upright. He is meeting God's expectation of what it means to serve God. Look at verse 4 with me. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. And skin for skin means this. God has taken the life of his 
children and so forth and so on, that's okay. You can take the life of someone else, but not my life. So that's what Satan is really saying about Job. Job was not happy what happened to his family, but the implication is Satan is saying that in terms of, well, at least I still have my life. This is how he is carrying out his dialogue, saying to God that, okay, you took my children, that's okay, you didn't take my life. That's how this communication is taking place from Satan to God. Skin for skin, he is saying. So he is making an accusation that Job didn't curse God to his face because he has still saved his life. His skin has been saved. Uh, Satan contends that what he has done to Job so far was just touching his skin, skin for skin. I only just touched his skin. I, that, that's nothing. Now, that's a little scratch. That's all I did. So the loss of all that he had, even the lives of his children, was nothing as far as Satan was concerned. But Job will give up everything to save his life. So he is convincing God that let me go beyond what I have done to him and let me do these things to him. So we can see from what Satan is saying just how brutal he can be if he turned loose. And I tell you one thing, if you want to see how brutal Satan really is, just look at that situation over there, what Hamas is doing. This is how brutal that, that he is. He is, he is, Lord Jesus. You, you, you think that, he, that Job, that he is doing Job bad, and he is doing Job bad for no reason at all, and you think about what Hamas is doing to those people over there, no reason at all, only because they hate Jews. That's why they're doing what they're doing, out of pure hatred. So you really see if God let man loose and back off and take his hand off man, do you see the extent that man would go with his evil? And Jeremiah was right in terms of what he said about the heart of man. Look at verse 5 with me. Just kind of bear with me this morning. Now here, go right here. Notice what he said, verse 5. But stretch out your hand and touch his bones and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. You notice what he's saying? I just um, scratched. He just got a little few scratches on his body. That's all he got. But now he wants to dig down to the bones and the marrow of Job. Man, I'm going to tell you, he is vicious. Vicious. I was thinking about what someone was telling me this morning. And when I'm saying he's vicious, he's crazy. He's insane. You know, think about what those people doing over there. And how they were explaining to me this morning that they... they, they I guess they do a topsy on those guys and they find out they are finding stuff in their bodies in, in, in these pills that they 
take in the midst of going and do what they do, it makes them crazy. And I was just praying the other day for North Korea. Over at North Korea, and I was reading this here, and I tell you, oh my goodness. North Korea would take steamrollers and roll over the head of Christians to kill them. I'm talking about, he is vicious. Steamrollers and rolling it over the head of people. You see why the persecuted church needs to be prayed for. Those hostile, restricted nations, they are evil towards Christian people. And we don't see no difference right here in dealing with Job. But think about this right here. It say, but touch his bones and his flesh. Satan is not talking about Job's skin anymore. Satan wants to inflict pain on the bones and the marrow of Job because he wants Job to feel the pain and the anguish. That's what he wants to do. And it's going to say, he will curse thee to thy face. We'll openly blaspheme God, say bad things about God, and let go of his integrity. Satan is vicious. He will do anything he can to destroy the life of a person. And it talks about over in Peter. Yeah, I think it's Peter. No, yo, John over there. And he talks about he came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Here's verse 6. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, here you go, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Now see, Satan asked to do this, but notice God has given permission. And Job never accused God for doing evil. And the thing is this right here, He doesn't have to do what he's asking God to do to Job. He, he has a choice, but no, he once an angel make a decision to do evil, which that's what Satan has done, he has no recourse, period. He has no recourse. It's not like you and I do something wrong and then we can correct and straighten it out. God has made preservation for us to be able to do that. But once, a, once an angel falls and do evil, that's it. He is co-signed to hell forever. That's it. So he has no choice. I'm, I'm thinking, no, he has no choice. He has to do what he's asking to do because that's his nature. So spare his life. This is the ultimate test. You remember test one in chapter one. Now here's test two in chapter two. And this is the ultimate test right here. The Lord, and, and, and this is the thing that interests me in this whole thing is this. Perhaps there were other people in the nation that God could have chosen for this test. 
But I'm going to tell you one thing. God had faith in Job. God knew without a doubt that Job would represent him well. That's why he chose Job. And we see this story unfold, and that's exactly what happened. Look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7, it says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now I'm not sure how much time had passed from the first test to the second test, but you don't want to wait too long. So I'm pretty sure that Satan rapidly got this done as quick as possible because he did not want Job to overcome the grief that he was experiencing with his, the loss of his family members. So now he wants to pour more grief upon top of that. So I believe that he did this very quickly within a short span of time. Look at verse 8 with me. And verse 8 says this, And he, Job, took a piece of broken pottery which was to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And this is the indication of mourning. This is the indication of intense grief that Job is expressing in terms of sitting in ashes and what have you. And you've got to understand something is this is Job is experiencing this without any kind of medication. No med back in those days. This is pure agony and pure pain. So he is scraping, he is scraping himself with pottery to relieve, she just said it from infection. He, he, these things are just under his skin. Infection can take place. So you just scrape them such that he can relieve the pulse and all of that, that infection does not build up. <laughs> I got to say this. <laughs> I remember getting in some poison ivory. And boy, and I tell you, that stuff itched me so much. And I knew I shouldn't scratch it, but I couldn't do nothing but scratch it. So I'm kind of relating to Job here of what's really kind of going on. Boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, no medication those days. This is all pure pain. We got all kind of meds that we can take, you know, for pain and what have you. I'm coming to the end here. Now, notice this right here, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, here's something very interesting that I kind of found in the midst of this. In chapter 1, when all that happened to Job, he lost everything, all his kids, and everything that Job lost also belonged to who? His wife. But she never said one thing back then. And I hadn't been able to figure that one out yet. But notice in this test too, she finally says something. Then Job's wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. I thought that was kind of interesting. 
Job's wife had not said anything in chapter 1, but now she realized this was definitely an attack on Job personally. His wife said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Thine integrity, her argument is this. In effect, well, let go of your integrity. Curse God, he will strike you dead. Then you can escape the pain. Her words are exactly the declaration that Satan made to God. That he will curse you and die. But I tell you something, I feel for Mrs. Job. Because think about having a loved one in this predicament. And there's no relief. You perhaps will ask God in your prayer closet to take the person. They are bit off being with the Lord. So I sympathize with her. But there's no excuse for what she said. No excuse whatsoever. So Job's wife suggested that Job do what Satan predicted, curse God. After all, she had lost everything and her children and now looking up on her husband suffering. It is no wonder she was ready to give up all hope. And if you think about it, many times Satan will use our own family members to make matter worse and not better in the midst of pain and suffering. And they're going to say this, and all this did not Job sin. It is proof enough that Satan was wrong and was sorely defeated. Satan does not appear again in the book of Job after this test, period. And here's the last verse, and we're going to close up. But Job said to her, listen to this right here, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we not receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And they're going to say, in all this, Job did not sin with his lip. So it's very, very important to understand in this particular verse that God is not calling, Job is not calling his wife a fool. Rather, Job is telling her that what she is saying to him is foolish. He's not calling her a fool, but what you are saying is foolish. This is something that the enemy would say. And also, you kind of notice he said this, you speak as one of the foolish women. So evidently, back in those days, Job perhaps was aware that there were those types of women. And he is saying, don't be like one of those to say foolish things. So she is being foolish about, now understand, this is God's will for Job. So Job's wife is rejecting the will of God for Job. That's foolish. And that's what Job is trying to get her to see. And that's why Job says this. Shall we not receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? 
See, Job is accepting this as the will of God, but his wife is rejecting this as the will of God. So his reply to his wife indicated he had a better understanding of God than she did. Even in this terrible pain and suffering, Job still stayed faithful to God and did not sin with his lips, as it indicates in Job 1.22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And that's the implication I was kind of saying earlier, that the statement of Job in 1.22 says that God is good and God is just. So we really see three character traits that Job cling to in the midst of his suffering. He clings to the idea that God is sovereign. And for God to be sovereign simply means that God is all-knowing and God is all-powerful. Therefore, God should be able to use his power and his knowledge in a way that he chooses in terms of his creation. That's the implication of God being sovereign. And then it says God is just. Sin must be punished. Otherwise, sin will just run rampage. But we know that Job had not sinned. But we serve a God who is a just God. And God is good. And Job made the declaration that God is good. And we say all the time that God is good all the time. But let me say one thing to you. We say God is good all the time because of what he does for us. But I tell you this morning that God is good whether he does anything for us or not. And that's the implication of it means that God is good. So I close with these words. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, we know that because our God is good, not because he does good things for us, but God is good, period. In God's economy, there is no such thing as evil. Only what is perfect and good exists in God's economy. In this sin-cursed world, we experience as evil due to fall on man is working everything for our good, those who love God. Just look at the cross. When you experience hard times and suffering times and pain, keep your eyes on the cross. And with that said, Father, we thank you for the time that we have spent this morning in your word. And Lord, I just pray you that we will tuck the idea of what Job showed us this morning in terms of you being sovereign, you being just, and you being good, I pray, oh God, that we will tuck the character of God deep down in the recesses of our heart that living in a sin-cursed world, not knowing when things can break loose in our lives, that we will we'll be able to stand firm and say, yes, our God is good. And Lord, we give you all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' name. And all God people say, amen.
going to do our hymn of response. What I want to do with this response is if you have made a decision today that you didn't know Christ before coming, but the Holy Spirit imparted to you that faith and you believe now in Christ, if you'd come forward and let Brother Morris know, confess. You know, I remember as a youngster, I'd watch Billy Graham at his crusades, and he, he would he would say something like, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. But, but if you don't confess him before men, then you wouldn't be confessed in heaven before the Father. So it's important. Christian faith is not some personal thing that I just keep to myself and, you know, nobody needs to know. Uh, Christ commanded us to go, to go and tell. So if you would have made a decision for the Lord today and would like to come forward so that Brother Morris would know that, that would be great. Uh, if you're online and would like to send a note to the havenbaptist.org and let us know of any decision there, or if you'd like more information, uh, please let us know. Our hymn of response is...